Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So it was a pretty significant development yesterday, and the Prime Minister had put a lot of political capital into the idea that Canada could win a seat on the UN Security Council. These are the non-permanent temporary seats, and so those shuffle every couple of years. And, you know, Canada's been there before. Stephen Harper had put Canada's name forward in 2010. We were unsuccessful, and Justin Trudeau vowed that he would succeed where Stephen Harper had failed. As it turned out, he got even fewer votes than, than Harper did. So maybe there are reasons for that. The Prime Minister today is suggesting that, you know, we're playing catch-up to, to Norway and Ireland. Okay, maybe. Uh, but perhaps this is a rebuke to some extent uh, of Justin Trudeau in his approach to foreign policy. Commentary uh, piece up at globalnews.ca. Trudeau's UN vote loss is a rebuke of his preachy foreign policy. That it's not enough just to not be Stephen Harper or to speak in platitudes. You know, we got to have a meaningful and substantive uh, foreign policy. Uh, Matthew Fisher is the author of that piece. He's an international affairs uh, columnist and foreign correspondent, has worked abroad for some 35 years. And you can read his piece at globalnews.ca. Matthew, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Rob. It wasn't clear how the vote was going to go yesterday. I was a little surprised that Canada was that far back. What, what did you make of it? I can't say I was surprised because that's what everybody overseas, ambassadors, diplomats, was. that's what they were saying. In the yeah. last few months, the uh, federal government, particularly Global Affairs Canada, what used to be the Department of Foreign Affairs, and, and the Prime Minister's office, the PMO, were putting it out that Canada was staging a tremendous comeback, uh, mostly on the back of the the Prime Minister's personal prestige and authority and how much he was liked and uh, respected by the world. And, of course, uh, if that is your strategy and you don't win, then you have to wear it. And uh, this is a Prime Minister who doesn't particularly like wearing any of it. Of course, most Prime Ministers don't. Uh, but uh, for him to suggest that this was now just a step in the process, and we started far behind. Why did we start far behind? Well, one of the reasons was that uh, the Prime Minister did nothing. He said Canada was back in 2015. Stephen Harper mm -hmm. had cut peacekeeping, then peacekeeping was cut some more. Humanitarian aid, Harper cut it, Trudeau cut it more. How are you going to win at the UN when you go after these sacred cows and offer less support? I, I just don't get it. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, you know, I think here at home in domestic politics, you know, Justin Trudeau has as a brand, he has an image, and that that has been somewhat successful for him. But on the international stage, I think they thought the same thing, didn't they? That it was, as you say, more about Trudeau, the idealist, or Trudeau and what he stands for, as opposed to, well, w w what have you done? What What is your, your foreign policy, right? I mean, so that it, it's, it, that sort of thing doesn't play on the international stage as well, I don't think. Well, a lot of people think it was a vanity project, that uh, Canada really didn't deserve to even put its name forward, and yet it did. Uh, and the Prime Minister does not wish to wear some of the errors that he made. Uh, I'm sure you recall his song and dance routine in India. Yeah. Uh, Indians were offended by that. It was very condescending. Uh, he was there to advance Canada's trade agenda. That never happened. 
Uh, the Prime Minister wore blackface three times, once when he was 29 years old, hardly a kid, as a teacher. And uh, Canadians seem to have accepted his apology. But I am wondering how ambassadors and leaders from countries in Africa and in the Caribbean uh, felt about that. Uh, Australia and Japan, well, he dissed them by not showing up. Uh, for uh, the signing of a trade deal in Vietnam. It never got any traction as a story in Canada, but it was a very big issue for those countries, and their leaders felt humiliated when literally the Prime Minister did not walk into the room. He wore fancy socks at a lot of these meetings, and the socks that he wore became the subject of conversation. If you do all of that, how do you expect to be taken seriously as a global statesman? I mean, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the other side of it, too, and I mean, you know, for Canadians who are watching all of this, and I don't know the Canadians were invested in the outcome either way yesterday, which, you know, suggests to me that they didn't really do a good job convincing Canadians that this mattered or that we should care or, or what the reason was for us to, to want this seat so badly. Well, Canadians famously are not very interested in foreign policy. This isn't a liberal thing or a conservative thing. It's just Mm -hmm. we don't get that engaged. The United States protects all our interests, and we criticize the United States whenever we feel like it. But Mm -hmm. that is sort of the Canadian uh, reality. But when you don't do much overseas and want to then uh, try to seize something. They were also looking not just for an idealistic Canada. You know, all the motherhood issues of the day. Uh, the Prime Minister said he repeated it again today. Nothing will shake him from his belief in the empowerment of women and girls, gender balance and equity, um, anti-racism, climate change. Well, we all agree pretty much on all of those things. There is nothing wrong with those positions, but the United Nations is the motorcycle gang of nations. Most of the countries there uh, are led by dictators. Uh, They are not interested in these issues, and if you want to win internationally, you get nowhere by talking about your values. And Canada really comes across, and it precedes this Prime Minister, but this government is particularly bad for it. We come across is very preachy and Canadians travel overseas and they think everybody loves them because everybody's nice to them. Well, we are inoffensive, but don't confuse that with respect and admiration for what we've done because they don't know what we've achieved in Canadian society. And frankly, if they don't care. We're far away. Maybe this is, in a way, a bit of a blessing in disguise, uh, because I think if Canada had prevailed, the government would have acted as though everything was terrific and, you know, we're foreign policy superstars and isn't everything wonderful. They can't pretend that anymore. So maybe there's going to be a need now for them to, to really define Canada in a different way and maybe to get serious about foreign policy and making a contribution on the international stage. I mean, is, I don't know, <laughs> am I being too optimistic about that? I think you wish for too much. I don't disagree (laughs) that this represents a a, a tremendous opportunity. But the initial reaction from the Prime Minister today is we did nothing wrong. We sort of started late and our our values are the best. Uh, We've not taken strong positions internationally 
on anything. Those one million Uyghur Muslims in Western China that are basically in concentration camps, Canada has never said anything about it until a few weeks ago. Canada, Canadian cabinet ministers were not allowed to utter that terrible curse word, Taiwan. Uh, We have not taken much of a stance on uh, Saudi Arabia and selling uh, a weapon system to them, uh, the light armored vehicles, the, uh, the big order that the Saudis have. On all of these issues, Canada has been kind of silent. and We've not contributed to NATO the way we promised. We're nowhere near 2%, and now we face uh, a big budget crisis. We'll, I guess we'll never get there. We've not done much for NATO. We're against ballistic missile defense. There are a lot of negatives. It's either negatives or silence. And I think what we need is leadership and a policy that is strategic and realistic, but you know they're forming a group to put out a foreign policy in the fall because we haven't had one really an official one for decades, but the people being selected to do this are all going to give them exactly, of course, the result the Liberal government wants, and that is more of the same, and more of the same ain't going to get us anywhere. Absolutely. As mentioned, uh, globalnews.ca, your piece is there today. A fascinating read uh, on the vote yesterday and how we got to this point. Matthew, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hope to speak with you again. Likewise. Take care. Matthew Fisher, international affairs columnist and foreign correspondent. Uh, His piece uh, up at globalnews.ca on how Trudeau's U.N. vote loss is a rebuke of his preachy foreign policy. And yeah, we can't be all things to all people. And, and we can't just be good talkers either, or just speak in platitudes. And the brand or the image that Trudeau has, has tried to build, that's not enough. Right? That's not going to suffice. So, no, I, yeah, I mean, I think this does force us to, to take a different view of, of foreign policy. Right? And, and to be serious about it, I, I think, as Matthew Fisher says, and it, it, you know, it's not a necessarily a liberal conservative thing, it's just not a priority. We don't really have kind of meaningful grown-up conversations about it. Over the last few weeks, as you're well aware, there's been a lot of conversation happening, uh, not just around issues of racism uh, and systemic racism, but more specifically issues around policing. And and certainly there's a lot of uh, unfortunate overlap between the two. So what needs to change? And you've heard a lot of calls for defunding the police or abolishing the police, and those have kind of become slogans uh, for a lot of people involved in, in some of these rallies and protests. Now, I, I think there are some, there's a certain element that mean that, that literally that's what they're talking about. But I don't think for the most part that's what the conversation is about. So maybe we can blame the activist for an overly simplistic slogan. Maybe we can blame people for not taking the time to understand these issues. But it, it has kind of skewed the conversation a little bit. Now, here in Canada, I mean, there, there has been a lot of talk about uh, a review of policing, an overhaul potentially of policing. Been a lot of calls in Ottawa, for example, for some more accountability from the RCMP. You saw the commissioner kind of slow to acknowledge, but did acknowledge eventually that there is systemic racism within the force. So what needs to change? Is it priorities? Is it training? Do we need a more diverse police force? Do we need to just start from the ground up? Maybe some of that becomes relevant as Alberta considers whether, as the uh, Fair Deal panel report suggests, uh, establishing its own provincial police force. And I guess if there's a need for an overhaul, maybe that's, that's one way of achieving it. 
So I wanted to talk a bit more about, you know, what this conversation needs to be about, whether these these kinds of slogans and debates are, are moving the conversation forward or, or distracting a bit from it. Uh, so uh, joining us to, to talk a bit more about some of these issues, I want to bring in someone who, you know, has a good understanding of, of what needs to change and kind of what this all represents. Erwin uh, uh, Cohen joins us. Dr. Cohen's an associate professor at the University of the Fraser Valley, also director of the Center for Public Safety and Criminal Justice Research at the university. Dr. Cohen, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleasure to speak with you. Um, your sense, first of all, you know, I mean, it's there's there's so much that's been happening in recent weeks, and, and such a, a big conversation that's been sparked about racism and policing and all of these issues, amid everything else we're dealing with at the moment. Do you get the sense that that you know we're we're on the way towards some some meaningful change, or what's your sense of how significant this moment is? I think it is. I think that um, police have always taken their responsibility seriously, and have, if you look at. Uh, models of policing or the way in which police try to police. There's been an, an, an evolving uh, movement since, basically since the 60s, to, um, to move uh, proactively and then sometimes in response to critical incidents to be a more responsive uh, police force. But I think uh, what's happening today is, again, a, a, another way of having the public uh, calls very specifically for the kinds of things they're seeing with police and how they'd like to see policing happen. So I think you've got uh, a general impetus, and yes, the RCMP, uh, you know, as a giant monolithic, is sort of like uh, an iceberg in terms of it's trying to change course. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, though, having proactive, switched-on leaders in policing in combination with this massive public outcry that's not coming from a particular sector or a particular community, but from across the country... Um, is a very positive move to help, uh, I wouldn't want to say reinvigorate, but help uh, continue the momentum uh, for the police to look at where they're falling short and what they do well and how to uh, maintain what they do well and be much more responsive to the demands of our diverse communities. Right, and, and maybe some police forces are, are better than others at that, and obviously not every police officer is the same. And, and on the other side of it, too, I mean, you know, for Canadians, their perception, their experience with police is going to vary. That to a lot of people, that oh, the police are, they're the ones you call when something bad happens. But for a lot of Canadians, that experience, that perception is much, much different. Yeah, no, I wouldn't disagree at all. We've done a lot of work in British Columbia in specific, looking at public uh, perceptions and attitudes towards the police. And what's interesting is that uh, what we have found, which what a lot of people have found, is that victims of crime tend to have a lesser, uh, a slightly lower uh, perception of the professionalism, respect, uh, those kind of things related to the police. It's still extremely high, but it is less than people who aren't victims of crime. But if you look at those who aren't, you look at just a general population, the amount of support for police, the degree to which they think police treat people equally, treat people with respect, are professional, uh, care about them, uh, understand the law, use their power of discretion and their use of force in a responsible way is extremely high in Canada, much higher than you would find in the United States. Right, so if, if not everyone can agree that there is a problem, let alone what problems need to be addressed, um, you know, I mean, that, that becomes the question, well, I mean, is it possible that maybe not much will change out of all of this, because maybe we can't get past some of these, these pretty simple and straightforward questions? Well, I, I would hope not. I, I hope that we would see change. I think that 
while even within those surveys where people overall rate police quite highly, they have specific things that they would like the police to improve on. And I think what, what's happened in the last 10, 15 years, and part of it has to do with budgets, and part of it has to do with taxes, and part of it has to do with uh, who is available in the sense that police are really your only 24-7 uh, essential service that is there no matter what time of day or night to assist that there's become a, a move in the last 10, 15 years, I would argue. And, and it's, it's, it was creeping and certainly in the, in the 70s and 80s, but it's become much more of an issue now where the police are responsible for everything. And I think that's become part of the challenge is that police have moved away uh, in part because of their budgets, in part because of who they are in terms of being available and in terms of police, uh, public expectation of police. They have become the place of first resort for a whole wide range of social issues which, while police may have a role to play, are not issues that either police own or are actually the best trained, best resourced, best positioned within communities to address. Mm-hmm. And I hope that, and, and in a large way, that's the way I sort of view, and I think a lot of people are starting to view, the defund police uh, calls. It is not for uh, the abolishment of the police, I would argue. There's, a, as you mentioned, there are obviously groups that are calling for that. I don't think anyone in Canada would like to live in a society where we had no police. Um, But what the defund really is talking about is since police take up a large, and in most cities, certainly the ones we've looked at in British Columbia, the biggest part of a municipal budget, that maybe there are, I don't want to say maybe, it is clear that there is money that is going to the police that you could hive off to other organizations and other parts of the community that are better positioned, better trained, better skilled at addressing some of these social issues and move police back to core policing. I would argue that if you've looked over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a pretty steady mission creep, a drift away from police doing what core policing functions are and becoming social workers and counselors and psychologists and surrogate parents. And it's a role that they've been playing in a lot of places because they are the only organization that can do it, even though they are not the best to do it and it's not what they're trained for, and it's not really what they should be doing. And so I think hopefully the calls to defund the police move from, again, this fringe, I would argue, small group of people who are saying let's abolish the police entirely and move towards serious community-level conversations around where is the money going for police, what are police best suited to do, and where can we... Uh, invest in other organizations, other agencies, other programs, other institutions to help alleviate some of the social problems so police aren't. The people either who are dealing with it or those problems escalate to the point where you do need a trained officer with a gun on his hip to respond to something. Right. So it's more about reallocating uh, some of those resources, isn't it? Yeah. And having a real serious look at it. So you know, in my business, when we look at policing, we talk a lot about prolific and priority offenders, that small group of offenders who are responsible for a large majority of the crime in a community. So a simple example is if you have 100 cars broken into last night in your community, it wasn't 100 offenders each breaking into one. It was one or two breaking into 50 or 60 or 100 cars. And if you can address those offenders in, in an effective way, you can drop your crime rate. And we know that police are good at that. But what we also know, which we don't talk a lot about, is that you have prolific uh, issues, that there's a small number of problems which generate a lot of this social ill and public safety issues. In BC, those three issues, and I, I assume they're quite similar across Canada, is homelessness, mental health, and drug addiction. And that's driving a lot 
of resources. Mm-hmm. And the argument is maybe we can take some of the money that's going to police to address those when they are not the best suited to address a mental health issue or an addictions issue and reallocate that money to youth issues, youth programs and schools and communities and families and mental health and health so that, again, these problems don't escalate to the point where it does then require a police response. And so I think that's the what I would hope would be the outcomes of all of this defund policing movement is a real hard community by community look at what are my issues and then who in a holistic partnership is best suited to address those issues yeah. as opposed to police owning all these issues. Right. And I think that that makes perfect sense. There's also the question, too, I mean, when you talk about core policing, you, even how we address those issues. And, and it does get into, I think, some of the issues around race. Uh, relationships with certain communities, and, and, and I, I don't know, I mean, certainly it, it's it's an issue that comes up in the U.S. It may be an issue here, too, with kind of the militarization of police or, you know, just that attitude that it's us versus them. We're out to deal with the enemies, so when police perceive citizens to be the enemy and citizens perceive police to be the enemy, that leads to problems. So is it a question of building relationships with communities? Is it a question about... Uh, having a more diverse workforce. I mean, how, how do we address that side of it so we don't have those kinds of, of issues and, and tensions between police and the communities they serve? Yeah, it is. It, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It is both of those issues that it is extremely important for the police to look like and represent the communities that they police. Policing should not be something that is done to you. Policing should be done within a community to keep everybody safe. Part of the way you do that is, again, through having a diverse police force. I'm not going to defend uh, any municipal police or the RCMP in terms of their hiring practices, but one of the challenges is, and we're actually doing a little bit of work in this area, is how do you attract people of different ethnic backgrounds, people from different countries, people from different genders, sexual orientation, to uh, the police force, a modern police force? Uh, there's a lot of things about the police that are unattractive to a lot of people. And so how do you... Um, how do you change the, not just the, the, the image, but the, the recruitment strategies, the retention strategies, so that you can get a diverse group of people who are interested in policing and who have a whole range of skills uh, that is required in modern-day policing of communities to be interested in policing and apply to policing. And then it's obviously incumbent on the police organizations to, uh, to build those kinds of things and to make it so that these people can be successful and have successful careers in policing. And part of that, again, is changing the image. Uh, So much of policing today requires what we we would call the soft skills, communication, understanding, empathy. It is no longer the case that, you know, if you look at policing in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, you know, we were recruiting, you know, former prison officials. We were uh, recruiting people who just came out of the military. We need a tough guys to police. That is no longer what is required and certainly not what's expected of policing in Canada. We need people who understand people, who are good communicators, who can de-escalate, who can understand. And so we're looking for a range of people with a whole different kind of background. But it's getting that message out to communities to say, you are the kind of person that we're interested in having in policing. And what can we do to, uh, to break down some of those barriers and hurdles that prevent people from a variety of backgrounds from seeing themselves as a possible police officer. And then it goes to the training and the education. And the other part that you tapped into, which is critical, is that outreach, is those partnerships. It is being in the community. Again, it is not, listen, most people who have uh, an encounter with a police officer, 
is having that encounter at the worst possible time in their lives. Something terrible has happened to them or they are doing something terrible, and here is a police officer. And it is critically important for people to have positive interactions with police. And so I am a big proponent of the police out in the community doing, again, sort of that soft policing, that traditional community policing, walking a beat, knowing the people, the people knowing them, being part of the community, not the policing that happens to you. And it's not necessarily a shift in mindset. I think in Canada, we are further along in that. There's a, a lot of great, great police organizations that spend a lot of time out in the community, not enforcing the law, simply building partnerships, simply building and participating as part of the community. And I think that does go a long way to building trust and understanding the relationships. And then again, being part of the solution as opposed to us versus them and that thin blue line and, and those kinds of adages. Yeah. Some interesting insights. I've uh, got to leave it there. Dr. Cohen, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. You as well. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Erwin Cohen, Associate Professor, University of the Fraser Valley, Director of the University's Center for Public Safety and Criminal Justice Research, uh, and sort of where the conversation can and should go about, you know, rethinking police, police funding, police funding models, police tactics, relationships with communities, and, and all of that. Those are interesting points there. So we waited a while to see the uh, Fair Deal panel report. I'm not sure still why there was a delay, but nonetheless, uh, it's kind of a moot point. The report's been released. We saw it yesterday, the recommendations, and obviously we've heard from the province in terms of how they plan to move forward on some of this. Now, notably, one of the, the standard recommendations is something the province was planning to do anyway, was to hold a referendum on equalization which, as I alluded to earlier, seems like a real waste of time and resources, uh, won't do anything, I don't think, to help Alberta. Certainly not the challenges we're dealing with at the moment. That said, though, I think there are some ideas in this report that might merit some consideration. Anyway, uh, the Buffalo Project, and we spoke with them recently about uh, the need to release this report, uh, they're saying that we actually need a more urgent response from the government and that some of these timelines should be compressed, including speeding up that referendum and holding it then potentially even this year. So joining us uh, for more is uh, Derek Robinson, spokesperson uh, for the Buffalo Project. Derek, thanks for joining me here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. So there's a lot to get into here, but Let's start with equalization, because I'm, I'm looking to be convinced. It, it seems to me we don't like equalization out here. It's, it's a flawed program. But from Alberta's perspective, I don't see any change that could be made to equalization that would mean a single dime staying here, a single dime coming here. So what, why the focus on this and why the need for a referendum? Well, I, I, one, it was promised, so I think we should certainly do it. The other thing is we, we need to do something to try to address it, and, and there is a lot of options out there. I know Fairness Alberta is, is a group in the province that's been pretty active. They're the ones with the billboards that have been up about equalization. They presented a number, a, a really good list, and I'm not a equalization expert in how that works, but a lot of the changes are actually to fiscal stabilization, the program that makes it responsive to what's going on, because equalization is pretty confusing and hard to change, but fiscal stabilization is something we could potentially move on, and if we are able to have this referendum, and it's successful, then it's supposed to trigger some negotiations with the federal government, and so I think if you do that, we are going to kind of push the debate forward, push the conversation forward, and it's a way to put pressure on the federal government. So, you know, I know you're, you know, you're kind of preamble uh, made it sort of clear that it's not going to do anything. And I think that's a, you know, a legitimate concern and a fear uh, probably of the government too. 
but how, how else are we going to do this is, is sort of my question. And, and why does it need to take so long? We've talked about this for a long time. Let's do it. Well, okay, but I mean, to what end, right? What are we trying to accomplish here? And if you say the goal is to, to bring about some changes in the fiscal stabilization program, I mean, sure, that's a laudable goal. Then why not make that the referendum question? I mean, a, the fiscal stabilization program is, is separate from equalization. Yeah, well, they're, they're tied together, right? So they're, they're supposed to work together. And, and so, you know, I, I'm not going to say what the question is supposed to be, but, you know, there could be some discussion there for sure. So, you know, if we're going to actually make some changes to this unfair program, and Albertans feel very strongly, we have polling on this, everyone knows Albertans do not like the current situation with equalization. It costs us billions of dollars per year, and it's not fair. It's not responsive. So what can we do to fix it? And I think probably the best option we have right now is to to have a referendum, force negotiations, negotiations with the federal government, and then provide a list of things that we want changed. And we're probably not going to get all of them, but it's going to be a way to, to start things. And to start, the country is going to also take notice if we have a referendum and say, uh, this particular province is taking some pretty serious actions here, and they're not okay with what's going on right now. And you're going to have other provinces that might join in. What about Saskatchewan? Well, Saskatchewan, we have polling on them too. They feel the exact same way. In fact, they support a referendum even more than Alberta does, the polling that we've done. And so what are other provinces going to say? Do they want some tweaks? Uh, what could all happen here? So it's a way to kind of get the conversation going. And uh, I think it needs to be done. You know, why, why do we need to wait a whole other year for this? And, and that kind of brings up another thing for me is, you know, with the Alberta Pension Plan, the Alberta Police Force, we're talking about doing studies of those and those being ready sometime in 2021. It's good to do the studies. I think we need to have the due diligence on those programs because it's pretty important if we're going to change them. But do we need like a year or more to to have those programs reviewed, or could we do that within the next three, four months in a quarter, say? Um, those are sort of the questions that we're saying, you know, let's have some urgency here. And I don't know how you, you felt, Rob, and I don't know how your listeners are maybe feeling too, but we kind of got the sense there wasn't a lot of urgency in, in the response from the government yesterday. It was kind of like, okay, you know, there's some stuff we're doing, and we're, we're going to – we're going to do some stuff next year. And, and we think there's more urgency, and, and certainly the polling we have says people want action right now. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess people can have opinions on that. I, I think maybe you're right that there, there's not a lot of urgency here, but I do think at the same time, I mean, you look at what Alberta's dealing with at the moment, you know, 13, I think it was 13.7% unemployment. Obviously, we're facing a massive, massive deficit this year. The uh, economic recovery panel will hopefully be bringing forward some some recommendations on on how to turn that around. I just that to me seems like the 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 aspect of what Alberta is facing right now that needs some urgency. I mean, I think a conversation about a provincial police force might have some some merit, but that seems kind of small potatoes compared to what we're dealing with at the moment, doesn't it? Well, I, I think if you really look at it here, what we're saying here is the fairness, the unfairness that we have within our federation right now is a lot of the cause of our economic problems. You know, a lot of the, the, the decisions that were made federally have really impacted our economy, and, and we don't have enough control over our, our economy and our situation, and we need, need to start taking steps now to, to address that. So if, if we keep just sort of pushing this off over and over again, like we've, we've debated all these issues for, for decades, right? Um, if if, if you know you grew up in the 60s we were talking about this in the 80s and mm-hmm. with reform and everything and, and now today we're talking about it again but we don't actually ever take the step we think it's never the right time or we tried some things and they didn't work well we can't just sit sit back and just say okay we're gonna we have other things to focus on right now and, and again in the polling that we did the urgency level of people was was very very high um and we don't 
really feel like that was reflected in, in how the government was talking. And it was almost like it was sort of getting pushed off for a year or longer. And, and that's just not strong enough what people are saying. So all this policies do matter. Jason Kenney said that yesterday. Policies matter. And if we don't have enough control to to direct our own economy and, and set our own policies and ways we do things, we need to start gaining some of that back. And so the, all these things are steps in that direction. It's not an instant thing, but we have to take some steps in that direction. If we don't make any structural change within the Federation, we're going we're gonna to be always like this, always feeling like we just don't have control and power. But at the same time, I mean, the idea that we're going to look at, at some of these issues carefully, I mean, even the, the Fair Deal panel report notes that moving to a provincial police force could potentially cost $112 million each and every year depending on, on what kind of an arrangement we reach with Ottawa. So uh, looking at that a little cl- more closely in terms of what is this actually going to cost? What can we work out with, with the federal government? I mean, that's the kind of thing we really want to rush into something that's going to cost us potentially $112 million a year uh, without really understanding what the costs and benefits are. Yeah, no, we, cer- we certainly should. We've got to do the due diligence, and I mentioned that. So, But the, the, do, do we need to spend a year doing it? That, that was sort of the question is like, can we not have a report within the next three or four months? Like, I, I just sort of wonder about these things. It's like we can do so many other things in, in a couple months. You know, you, you hire a, a third party group of some sort that is independent and they, and they do a, a, a study. You know, these studies don't take years. They, they can take months, especially if there's a, a deadline. And so that, that's sort of the sense we're getting from the people in the Buffalo Project and just, you know, through polling and, and talking to people is like, it just didn't feel like there was that urgency. Like we really need to start making this stuff happen. Um, and so, you know, I, I understand your perspective and what other people are saying uh, and, and even how the government feels sometimes, but the, you know, what the people are saying is completely different. Well, yeah, and, and that's true. And, and I think in general, there's a frustration. Uh, I, I suppose different people might prioritize uh, different aspects of this, uh, that, that maybe not all of these are equally as urgent. I mean, are, are there priorities here among these recommendations? Can some wait a little longer? Are, are some more urgent in your view or what the polls are telling us? Yeah, there's certain, you know, our polling kind of says there's certain things that Albertans really want right now. I think they're kind of saying they would like more information on the pension plan change and the police force. How is that all going to look? How much is that going to cost? We, we need some, some staff and some information on that, absolutely. Equalization is one. It's like, we got to move on that now. You know, this is costing us billions of dollars a year. If, if there's anything we have to get a, a new deal on, it is definitely equalization. But how is that costing us billions of dollars? This is what it kind of frustrates, frustrates me about the conversation, yeah. uh, that it doesn't cost Alberta anything. Scrapping the program altogether wouldn't wouldn't save Alberta any money. So wait, why can, why why should that be a number one priority right now? I'm still trying to understand that. Well, if you look at it, we're not getting the payment from fiscal stabilization that we should be getting because the program's not responsive at all. So when there's a huge downturn in the economy, we shouldn't have to be paying into the equalization program at the current rate that we are. And so well, we don't pay into any government. That, that's well, I, I know what you're saying. It's it's it goes through federal taxes and. You know, I'm not an expert on equalization. I'm not going to pretend to be. But the Kennedy government has been fighting this, and it hasn't been going very well. And so we need to apply some more pressure onto the federal government to make this happen. And so our whole thing is, are we really fighting for this as hard as we possibly can? Um, if we're going to do this referendum, let's do it now. Let's not, let's not wait another year um, to, to potentially do it. So, you know, I, that's, that's kind of our, our position, and we think the timelines could certainly be compressed on this, and I think the public would be very supportive of a lot more urgency on a lot of these matters.
Yeah, yeah, you may be right about that. I guess we'll see where things go in the weeks ahead. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Derek, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Rob. See ya. All right, take care. Uh, that is Derek Robinson, uh, spokesperson for the Buffalo Project. And so their thoughts on where the Alberta government needs to go from here. And they're saying there needs to be a lot more urgency to all this stuff. Don't wait another year to hold a referendum. Don't wait a, another year to, to study the pension issue, the policing issue, etc. So th- it, there lies part of the question here, part of the dilemma for the government. How much of this is a priority right now? You know, maybe that was one of the reasons why they wanted to delay this report. As it turns out, they didn't delay it really all that long, I guess, another month or so. Uh, but given, I think, the economic challenges we're facing at the moment, I, I, I'm hard-pressed to see how, how these issues tie into that. Like I say, I think you can make a compelling argument for an Alberta pension plan. I think there's some potential risk involved in that. I think right now, with Alberta's younger population, you know, we could have a pension plan that has lower premiums or, or higher payouts. Um, are there questions about AIMCO's investment decisions? That's presumably who would be in charge of this pension plan, and they've had some unfortunate missteps as of late. What happens as Alberta's population ages? Does it become less attractive of an option? But it, So it's worth looking at, though, I think. Same thing with the Alberta Provincial Police Force. The idea of a more responsive kind of police force, more connected to local communities. You know, Alberta priorities when it comes to policing, etc. Okay, you know, there's something to be said for that. Is it worth spending $112 million a year additionally above and beyond what we pay right now for policing. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Or maybe there are ways that we can mitigate some of those costs. Let's take our time with that. But again, look at the unemployment rate, Alberta's growth rate, the massive public health challenges we're facing. Where would a provincial police force rank right now in your list of priorities in terms of what Alberta needs to deal with? Doesn't mean the idea is completely without merit. But is that a top five, top ten priority? I don't know that it is. All right, 974-8255 is the number here, 974-TALK. We'll have some more time for your phone calls. We can talk a bit more about this Fair Deal panel report, more about Alberta's priorities. And here's the other thing. I mean, it's, you know, certainly even to have the UCP relying on the emergency wage subsidy and the province of Alberta very much relying on some of this federal response. I mean, is that... Is that the least Ottawa could be doing for Alberta, given all we've done for the country? Or does it make some of this conversation uh, a little disingenuous to say we need less Ottawa, except for all of this other stuff? Keep that coming. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.